You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Today is a continuation of the changing of the guard here at SpyCast. So a couple of weeks back, Vince interviewed me. This week, I'm going to interview Vince, and we're going to be saying au revoir to Vince. So Vince has grown the podcast exponentially in terms of visitor numbers. I'm sure he'll be back as a guest in the future, but from now on out, it's going to be my voice that you're hearing as the host of SpyCast. Okay, Vince, um, the first question may be rather obvious, but... Who's the one that got away? What's the what's the one interview you wish you had done that you never got around to doing? I mean, it is easy. It's one that we tried. I tried for years to convince Edward Snowden to do some kind of a video chat or a podcast with us. And I went through every medium. We got very close. Um, apparently, there was a sniff. Uh, but he has a lot of handlers, and not I don't mean just the Russian intelligence agencies. He's got a lot of people telling him who to talk to and who not to talk to. And I think that, you know, public information about the museum, you look at it and you see, so we have some board members who are kind of former, you know, Republican, members of Republican cabinets. We have people who tend to be right of center. We have former NSA directors on our board. And I think he probably assumed that everyone was going to, it was going to be some kind of a ambush interview um that began to change a little bit when the new museum came out because i think it became very obvious based on our films and based on who we were involved with uh, including someone like ben wisner who is the aclu lawyer who represents snowden like people like thomas drake who was the nsa whistleblower that we were fair that we were a museum that was going to take objectivity seriously and i think we got kind of close and i think actually covid probably derailed that uh, so I say keep trying, right? I think that <laughs> I think there's an opening potentially there uh, for a conversation uh, with him. And I mean, that would have to be one where you can't let him get away with nonsense because 
you know, he certainly has a dog in the fight. He's certainly going to try to. There's stuff he said that I was going to call him out on, particularly things like that FISA is a rubber stamp. He knows better. He knows how it works. Uh, he's just using that to kind of gain political points and, and to make a, you know, uh, to stick it to the American process. But at the same time, I think that, you know, I've had people push back and they're like, why do you want to talk to that traitor? It's like, fine, you might think he's a traitor, but you can't deny he's historically important, right? He changed everything. You can't deny that this is somebody that it matters what he thinks, right? Whether you agree with it or not, whether you want to see him strung up or not, whether you'd want to see him behind bars for the rest of his life, whether you think he's a traitor or a hero or someone who was working for the Soviets or Russians or whatever, same thing at this point. He's historically important. I would have talked to Fidel Castro. I would have talked to anyone. I'd love, Putin would be great, right? When Putin comes to the United States, come do the podcast. It's not our job to, to judge the value based on someone being evil or not, or a bad guy or not. Uh, you know, historians write about bad people all the time. Historians write about subjects that uh, kind of turn your stomach a little bit. Uh, and I think that that's something that if you want to be good at your job, you kind of have to. I mean, look, you know, I wrote my dissertation in my, one of my books is about Nazi science. And you kind of read about these guys like Werner Heisenberg, right? Werner Heisenberg is kind of the anti-hero, the hero of, of one of my books. And he was a Nazi, right? He wasn't part of the Nazi party. He wasn't Heil Hitlering. He didn't like Hitler very much, but he did everything he possibly could to help the Germans win the war. Sorry, dude. In my book, you're a Nazi. Werner von Braun, similar to that, right? We denazified a lot of these guys after the war because we wanted them to help us. But if you're helping Hitler win the war, you're not a good dude. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But he's important, right? I'm not. I'm not comparing Snowden to Hitler. Please, if you've got comments and questions and complaints, send them to a Hammond at spymuseum.org. <laughs> not to me. Um, that's something that to me, we can't just. We're not the CIA museum. We're not the NSA museum. We're not government at all, right? So we want a holistic approach to history, right? We want to deal with the good and the bad, the all the gray areas, not just the white. Uh, sure, you know, the cryptologic museum is probably not going to want to have a program with Edward Snowden, but we sure as hell should try, uh, just because it matters, right? And. One of the reasons that I'm really looking forward to the to the position is that it's you know you you're meeting um, former uh, people who have worked in the intelligence world, um, academics who have studied the intelligence world. So you're getting all of this great input and and insight into the world of intelligence and espionage. What are some of the things that you've learned um, over these years since you've been here? What are some of the things that you're, you know, misconceptions or preconceptions or what, what, what are some of the most important lessons that you walk away from the job with? Well, one of the great things is that you get to meet intelligence officers from other countries and in some cases, intelligence officers from adversarial countries. Uh, my second day on the job, I had lunch with Oleg Kalugin who I had read about in grad school. I'd read his books in grad school. You know, for those of you who don't know, he was a major general in the KGB. He was uh, essentially a guy who spent his entire life working against the national security of the United States. He was Kim Philby's handler in Moscow. He 
He was uh, he held, handled John Walker, who until Snowden was arguably the most damaging spy in American history. Uh, this is a guy who spent his life trying to make sure that I was less safe. Uh, spent his life trying to make sure that my father, who was in the military, and my grandfathers, who were in the military, one day could possibly be incinerated by Soviet weapons, whether it's a nuclear weapon or a tank round or something else like that. And now he's an American citizen. Now he's a board member of the Spy Museum. Now he's joking about that. And you know, it was like the second day on the job, and he's joking about, you know, people ask me all the time. I'm not going to try to do a Russian accent, but Oleg accent. People ask me all the time if I killed anybody, and I kind of just laugh and I say, "Well, she was alive when I put her in the trunk." And then kind of he walked off to the bathroom, and I'm like, "What the hell just happened?" Right? And so you kind of get this appreciation for the professionals. I'm not talking about the scumbags who were recruited to be traitors against their countries. Even then, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. I shouldn't use the word scumbag, but, that's, but I'm allowed to be a little bit of a, a judger when it comes to people who just straight up sell out their countries for money or for other things like that. But the professionals of the world, I met some professionals in Cuba. When we visited Cuba at, you know, for the museum, we were trying to get the Cuban government to agree to allow an artifact exchange with some of their major museums. It turned out it didn't happen. Uh, they were just, they couldn't get over the fact that there was a non-profit, non-governmental intelligence museum. They thought we were all CIA and they just couldn't get over that, even though the Ministry of Culture would have loved to have some kind of an exchange. Anyway, while we were down there, one of our guides, he straight up said, I'm former DGI. And he was the nicest guy in the world. And he was somebody that had worked against the United States. He'd worked against the Cuban exile community where I grew up within. And it wasn't that he was a bad guy. He was just doing what was necessary for his country's national security. And I think that's something that I learned very quickly. When you meet formers from, whether it's the former Soviet Union, you meet formers from adversarial nations during the Cold War, like the Eastern Bloc nations. Or even when you meet, you know, you run into a group from China that's clearly there's a lot of embassy personnel that aren't second deputy agricultural attaches, that they're actually, you know, they're, they're Chinese intelligence under official cover. Yes, they're doing a job and their job is the screw over the United States, but it's a job, you know, so they're not, they're doing it because they believe in their countries. They're doing it because they, they're patriotic to their countries. And, you know, our guys who go over there from CIA or whatever else are, are kind of the equivalent, well, you know, vice versa in reverse. Now, I had an opinion, like I kind of gave off, that those that are recruited, um, particularly Americans, and this is where I can be raw, raw patriotic, um, probably aren't as high in my esteem list as those who had a crazy experience. And, and, and perhaps I've talked to this uh, on the podcast before, but uh, it was not too long after I started, so maybe a year into the job. and. I got a phone call at my desk and it was the front desk of the museum and it said, you know, Vince, there's someone here to see you. And I looked at my calendar. I'm like, I'm busy. I'm working on the new museum design, all this stuff. I'm like, I've got no time for anybody. There's no one I'm supposed to be meeting. You know, please let them know. I'll call them later, leave a message or something like that. And so I can hear the front desk person turn and say, you know, you don't have an appointment, whatever. And I, and I hear the guy interrupts and goes, tell him it's Ronald Pelton. And I heard that through the phone. And then when the front desk person came back, I'd already hung up and I was running downstairs. For those of you who don't know, Ronald Pelton is one of the worst 
spies in American history. He is someone who would be considered one of the top 10, you know, on the same list as the Benedict Arnold of the world and the, the Robert Hanton and others. He was a uh, NSA employee who sold out the agency and caused a lot of real problems for the United States. Ivy Bells, which was a gold mine of information we had tapped into underwater cables that the Soviets didn't know were tappable. And so they were talking in the clear and we were just listening every day to information about the Soviet military. He gave him a lot of information about the SOSIS system, which was helping us attract Soviet submarines. John Walker gave him the majority of that, but but the NSA part, a lot of it came from Ron Pelton. And for his treachery, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. That was in 1985. Well, he did his 30, and in 2015, he got out, checked in at his halfway house, and then came to the spy museum because he had heard that's where his stuff should be, and he had a briefcase full of the stuff. And it was like, what a crazy day having Ron Pelton walk into the spy museum. This is somebody that I'd studied. This is somebody that anyone who's done intelligence work had read about Ron Pelton. You know, that's they still talk about him during NSA security briefings about don't be this guy because he spent the rest, you know, basically the majority of his life in prison. And that was one of those kind of come to Jesus moments for me because I had sitting across from someone who on any other day I would think is a complete piece of garbage. But he was just this kind of broken old man who had, you know, found God and everyone finds God in prison in 30 years and just wanted to and in his words, just wanted to make things right. And I'm like, you're never going to make things right, but I appreciate the idea. He's like, look, I just want the next generation not to do what I did, not to fall into the same mistakes. And so I kind of had to check my judgment at the door and say, okay, this is not Bob Hansen. Bob Hansen to this day is still blaming other people for what happened to him. This is not Rick Ames. Rick Ames to this day is still blaming other people for what happened to him. In fact, I wrote a letter to Rick Ames and he wrote me a letter back, which was kind of cool also, Still blaming other things. Like, he, like catastrophic midlife crisis is the phrase that he used. It was not apologetic in any way. But here was this little broken man who was just saying, I just, I, I just don't want anyone else to make the same mistakes I did. And who just owned it, right? He owned what he did. And so that kind of made me stop and, and be willing to kind of not be judgy. I'm very judgy in a normal world, right? I walk around judging people. I walk around just whether it's haircuts or clothes or whatever, I'm judgy. And that's just people that know me see my kind of resting bitch face in in many respects. What are you doing? When I do my work here on the historical side, it's very, very important that you don't do that. Uh, There's a piece of advice for you. Uh, It's that, you know, intelligence is gray. Right. We like to live in a nice, tidy world of black and white. Right. You know, I come from a science technology background. Right. That's you talked about the uh, in last week's podcast. You talked about how the announcement for this job just spoke to you. It was you. Right. Well, the announcement for my job said someone with background in science and technology and someone like that's me. Science and technology, everything, not everything. Most things are black and white. Right. It's math. It's right or it's wrong. Unless you're getting into like really theoretical stuff. There's usually a right answer to something. We're not in that world here, right? We There is no black and white. I don't care how rah-rah American you are, you're still operating in a gray area. And so having that understanding, I think, is a really important trait to have to be successful here because you never know who you're going to be sitting across from. And the only way to really get to 
what we need here as a museum, like help the public understand not only intelligence, but why people do what they do, is to treat it as objectively as you possibly can. I mean, we're still human, but to try to be, to kind of check your, your BS at the door and, and, and try to deal with it that way. And are there any particular podcasts or interviewees that, that stand out? I mean, I, I, when I'm surprised, I, this is going to sound like I pat myself on the back, but I'm almost obsessively prepared for these. Uh, if there's a book, I've usually read it twice. Uh, fortunately, I read quickly. I would never be able to do it otherwise. It's just one of the, the ways that I'm able to do that. Um, in the case of someone like David Petraeus, if they have a PhD, I try to find their dissertation or stuff they've written about. But when someone says something that's surprising to me, I love it because I, I try not to be surprised, right? You want to be, it's like a good journalist, you know, which I'm not saying I am, but any good journalist, you kind of already know the answer to the question that you're asking. I, I try to already know what direction the guest is going to go in the answer to the questions. But every so often, they'll go off on a tangent. And I've had very well-prepared notes. And within five minutes, someone will go off on a tangent that is so wonderful and so juicy that I'll just slide them to the side and let, let, let's go. Let's do this. Uh, Kofor Black was a great example of this. A couple years ago, did a three-part 9-11 um, series of podcasts. One was Barbara Sood, who kind of was the beforehand. She wrote the August 6th briefing, Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States. We talked a lot about that summer in the lead up uh, to 9-11. And then the third one was Mark Zaid talking about all of the kind of legal issues that came as a result of 9-11 from the Patriot Act to a lot of the whistleblowers and everything else. But Kofor Black was in the counterterrorism center at CIA on 9-11. Several days before that, he was in the Oval Office slamming on the desk saying they're about to hit us. Do something about it. A lot less clean than that. Kofor used a lot of naughty language that uh, I'm not going to use, surprisingly, to everyone. Um, he, I just let him go. There are times when you realize that you're in the way and you just want to sit back and let people go because you don't need to kind of lead them the water. I mean, there, there are interviews where man, you got to pull every word out of the person you're sitting across from. And that's not just because they're bad people. It's because in many cases, they've been former practitioners and maybe they're just removed from the agency. And they're just not used to speaking publicly or they don't want to give you information. They're kind of trained not to. So you've got to kind of pull it out. You've got to be a lot more aggressive and a lot more active. But there are times when you just realize that the best thing I can do is just let this person talk. And Kofor, God, he just was great. I, mean, I was ready for him like to flip the table over. And when he got, because this was not, you know, the emotions of people like Barbara Suit and Kofor Black, they're not fake and they're not going anywhere. I mean, this is 10 plus years after 9-11 and, and Barbara Suit teared up when she talked about it. I even asked her straight up, I said, is there anything you think you could have done more to prevent 9-11? And she's like, I think about that every day. And for us, you know, we go, wow, oh, you know, 9-11 kind of was, pretty shitty and you know it caused a lot of problems but this is literally the person that her job was to prevent it and she didn't and in hindsight could she have done anything else of course not but that has to haunt her every single day Kofor the same thing right it has to haunt him every single day and so when you get people who are willing to bear their souls like that to someone they've never met before uh those make for the especially good podcast 
And, and, and on another, and you'll, you'll run into these all the time, is when you get a former director or somebody very high level who just relaxes. A lot of times they're so used to doing interviews where they're worried about what they're going to say is going to be misconstrued. They're worried about what they're, I mean, when they were directors, everything they said had an impact, right? If they said something crazy, the markets could go to hell, right? They could, you know, other countries were paying attention to it. Talk to people like the Petraeus is the world, like Mike Hayden, Mike Rogers, the former NSA director. We talked to him pretty soon after he stopped being the NSA director. And he kind of came in, was a little bit like not sure about things. But boy, did when he realized it was going to be a conversation with somebody that kind of knew what they're talking about. And it was, he could say stuff because our great AV guys could edit it out if he said anything like literally classified. I mean, he leaned back, he was relaxed, he was smiling. And then at that point, like I was talking about, just get the hell out of the way. This is a guy who's for 35 years has worked in intelligence, former head of the NSA. The last thing anyone wants needs to hear is my voice. Just let him go. That reminds me of a, a lunch that I had with Sir Roderick Braithwaite, who was the last British ambassador to the Soviet Union. And I went for lunch with him and he just started talking and I just thought to myself, I have to get the hell out of the way and just listen and absorb. There are lunches that I used to go to that just got way too busy when we were making the museum, but it's a bunch of formers and like high level formers who are, you know, every so often we were worried one of them wouldn't show up because they had, you know, gotten to the age where they couldn't come anymore or drop dead. But I was just there just like a fly on the wall. Because they would start talking about Moscow in 78 and stuff. And you're like, ooh, this is great. I mean, this is a, as historians, this is, I mean, you're literally sitting with the people that did it. And you know better than to try to interject like, I know so much. No, just shut up and listen <laughs> uh, and, and just enjoy the moment. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And what are some of the biggest misconceptions that, that you have came across that people still have about intelligence about about the wilderness of mirrors right. because you've been here at an institution that more than most others attempts to dispel myths and 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 
get rid of preconceptions. Right. So what 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 springs to mind? Well, I mean, we're in a tricky situation in that no one until very recently, and this is very specialized, but no one went to school to learn about intelligence, right? There are very few, even people that went through college, very few intelligence classes, very few intelligence programs. Now they're starting to pop up places. But those tend to be people who are going into the business, right? So if you're a lawyer from Kansas, if you're a random person from California, other things, the likelihood that you've taken formal education about intelligence is very, very low. I mean, I, I created from scratch an intelligence class at the University of Maryland when I was teaching there, but the minute I left, it went away, right? This is not something that's taught in most places. Why that matters is that most museums on the planet people walk in with a little bit of formal knowledge about what they're about to see. You go to the Natural History Museum across the mall, you study dinosaurs in school, you, you know a little bit about geology, you know kind of some of the basics of how they were formed and other things like that. American history, you've taken a history class. I mean, art museums. You took a class or you've heard of Rodin, you've heard of Da Vinci, you've heard of the people that you're gonna see. Sometimes you really know them well, even though you don't have an art degree. When people come into the spy museum, there's no formal education, which means that it's not just that they know nothing, but their education in many respects has been replaced by pop culture. So what they think they know is based on Homeland and Americans and Bond movies and other things like that, which needless to say is a bunch of garbage when it comes to, I'm not saying they're bad entertainment. I'm saying they're garbage when it comes to portraying the real world of intelligence. Even the ones that try to get it right, they're still leaving things out. I mean, the, the most effective one, people always ask me, like, what's the best pop culture? It's the six-hour Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness, which I do this as a job, and I'm about an hour and a half into it, I'm snoring, right? It's boring. Real intelligence would be boring if you put it on film, if you put it on TV, because 90% of it is paperwork or it's it's reading like what would you do a real homeland would literally be the counterterrorism center on Google or you know looking at open source stuff or sitting in front of a computer that's not something that you can actually do a good film or a good TV series about I mean in the movies if you want to get black if you want to lose your surveillance you jump from one train to the other real fast or you change cabs or you put on a different hat you can do that in three minutes in a movie if you're doing that in Moscow in the height of the Cold War, it takes 12 hours, right? That's that's like four weeks or something of, of long TV series. That is one of the biggest difficulties of a museum like this, is that you don't just have people who are like tabula rasa, right? A blank slate coming in. If you did, that would be wonderful. Or if you're like, I'm just going to paint you a picture of real world. You almost have to deprogram people because they come in and they get just get sad that everything they've seen is bullshit. You know, even stuff like, oh, I saw the imitation game, like how real was that? I'm like, well, it's fake 30 seconds into the movie. Alan Turing does not commit treason by telling a random beat cop all the stuff he did during World War II to break Enigma, right? That doesn't happen in real life. That is, that would have sent him to prison forever. And he doesn't get blackmailed by John Karen Cross that, you know, all. So yeah, you learn a little bit more about Alan Turing, maybe. But they're, even in that, you've got problems, right? The Americans is great. It's wonderfully entertaining. There were and are Russian sleeper agents. There were and are Russians who are doing honey traps, you know, like Elizabeth Jennings does. And, but they're not running around killing or trying to kill the defense, sec, you know, Secretary of Defense and doing all this stuff and wearing all these 
crazy outfits and they sure as hell wouldn't be doing it if they lived across the street from an FBI counterintelligence professional. They would lay low and do nothing. That show would be Seinfeld. It would be a show about nothing for four seasons in the real world and no one would watch it. And so I think that you're in a position where you, you kind of ruin some people's perception of intelligence and you kind of have to be the bad guy and say, hey, look, yes, there are exciting things that happen. We have a wonderful covert action gallery at the museum. But man, that is rare. It is really, really rare that a president or a prime minister or someone says, hey, let's start a paramilitary operation in this country. Most of the time it gets to the president's desk and he goes, I want to know more about this and sends it back. Taskings are, hey, tell the, ask the North Korea guy to give me more information about this or thanks for telling me. And then you never hear about it again. That's how the intelligence world works in the real world. And that's something that it's very hard to get that point across because no one wants to hear that because everyone wants to be the James Bond jumping out of a perfectly good airplane with a martini in one hand and a stupidly named blonde in the other. That's the dream, right? Or, you know, as a, the woman version of that, Jane Bond, you know, where you've got, you know, DiCaprio on one arm and you've got a Cosmo in the other and I just pissed everybody off all at once. That's what I do well. That's just not reality. I mean, that it's only on Tuesdays. You only jump out of airplanes on Tuesdays. Every other day you're doing paperwork. And is there any advice that outgoing Vince would give to arriving <laughs> Vince when you first came to the Spy Museum as a podcaster or as just the historian curator? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that this is something that people who listen to SpyCast don't know a lot about. And certainly people who visit the museum don't know a lot about this. You only really get this if you come to our programming is the exceptional competence. And I know that word doesn't really sound all that sexy, but I'm using it in the most flattering way possible of those that work at this museum. The actual, the people who are here, you kind of walk in thinking you're hot shit, right? You're like, got a PhD in intelligence history. There are like 20 of us in the world. You know, by definition, I am the world expert at my one little area of fiefdom of whatever my dissertation is. Um, you walk in like, you know, I'm going to run this place. And then you're surrounded by people who are as good or better than you. And I think that's something that you get at a lot, certainly, probably a lot of museums around, certainly here in DC, you know, DC, the museums are just insane. You know, but here you have people who have worked at this museum for a decade and a half. And even though they don't have formal degrees like we do, they've seen everybody, they've talked to everybody, they've read everything, they, they've just lived it. And so you have people from top to bottom who are in a position to help you, are in a position to lead you in the right direction, to do what you do. Now, the, really the only difference is the formal training, right? But you know, on the job training or, you know, as ex-military, you understand you can go through basic all you want. You can do the gunnery range all you want, but it doesn't really matter until you're deployed somewhere that counts. Well, this is now, you're now being deployed somewhere that counts and you're surrounded by some people that know what the hell they're doing. And I think that, you know, you have people here, again, they may not have the PhD, but they're, they're like the good platoon sergeant. Right? They're the people that the minute you walk into a new platoon, you walk right up to that grizzled E7 and say, you don't walk up to the lieutenant who went to West Point. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. I don't care if he went to you know the, 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 that school up on the Hudson. 
you walk up to the guy who he's 29, but he looks like he's 60, you know, this, the sergeant first class and say, teach me everything. And that's what my advice would have been to me. That's my advice to you. Uh, you're surrounded by a, a group of people who are extraordinarily good at what they do. You don't get a museum like this. I mean, people, people come here and they get really surprised at how small our staff is. Right. Overall, we have a pretty decent sized staff when you include the guest services and the retail people and the facilities people and everything else. But the people who do content, who do the classes for the youth, for the adult programming, for everything else, you're talking less than 15 people. And, there, and that's, that created a museum like this is pretty extraordinary. And they're all still here. I'm really the only one leaving at this point. Um, and they've done it regardless of who their damn historian is. Right? We are the ones that change over all the time. They're the ones that stay. Right? So there are people in your department now, you'll be the fifth historian they know. And they just watch them come and they watch them go and they keep on keeping on and doing their thing and making this museum one of the best museums in the world. And I think that to me, uh, you know, I hope I find that where I'm going. Um, but I would, be, I would be surprised if I did. I think it's just really unique here at this museum because they you do so much with so little um just the resources are i mean look the smithsonian for as great as it is that the, the the american history museum has a curator for hats there's a curator for cars there's a, they, they, there's so many damn people that work there so of course you have an amazing museum there's one person that has the title curator at this museum and it was me and now it's you right now everyone does content stuff but there's no hat curator here Everyone has to pull their weight in then some. And I think that's what people may not realize about this museum. They see it from the outside. They're like, it's the same size as a Smithsonian, but it's not run by the same amount of people. It's, it's, it's run by a very small, look, not to put, this is a ridiculous analogy. We're the, we're the special operations of the museum world, right? We're the tight elite unit that every single person has ridiculously they could all be a director at a museum anywhere else. Uh, and we have, we have proof of that. So, so the role that I'm about to take over and that you're leaving is historian curator. Now you obviously came in as a historian, as someone who had training in history. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the other side, mm -hmm. um, the cur curatorial part. Like, Man, what been, have you learned? I've been here six um, and a half years, and I don't have no idea what the hell that word means. <laughs> um, well, th one of the interesting things is uh, I don't know what it means on a day-to-day -day basis. In all honesty, uh, I came in. It was like a week after I came in. There was the one of the first major Spy Two meetings, uh, and so from the second I hit the ground the planning for this museum was fully underway. And so I spent a lot of time working on the concept, working on the content, working on getting artifacts and getting people and everything for this museum. So I never was in a position where I was a day-to-day -day curator. Um, curatorial work in a museum that's not transitioning to grow exponentially from what it was before is kind of doing what we did for the new museum writ small right it's doing it in baby steps it's coming up with temporary exhibit ideas it's coming up with you know getting new artifacts and hunting down stuff from people who 
uh, may not know what they have in their attic or they do know and they may not want to give it to us and it's convincing them to give it to us and it's figuring out ways to uh, more effectively get the message across to the public because yeah we we built this museum and we think it does a really really good job of what it's designed to do but there are times when we step back and go oh we maybe not right we've already tweaked things here and there throughout the museum because they didn't have the same impact we assumed they were going to that when the general public saw it they saw it in a different way than we did i mean we were kind of in a bubble for five years that's kind of the job of the curator and you know you bring subject matter expertise to bear on current events. And that's kind of the question I was, you know, in many cases I was asking you, you are a historian, yes, but a lot of the stuff you're gonna be dealing with on a day-to-day basis is what's happening right now. And that's that's where, that took some transition. You know, I, I, you know, I was very tempted to be like, well, it's not really history yet, so we don't really know how to approach this. And I'm like, well, all right, but you know, what do you think about what's happening historically? I'm like, that kind of sucks, you know, or whatever. Like, that's where uh, the curatorial side of things I think comes into play. Also, is because what you're going to present to the public may be something that is current events related, maybe something that is kind of hot right now, right? You know, that's where we have a cyber room in the new museum, and I'm like, how do you, how do, you do a permanent exhibit on cyber? It literally changes by the day. Well, you're going to have to kind of stay up on that, right? That's part of what the curator has to do in many cases is make sure that what is in the museum is current. Make sure that what in the museum is not dramatically outdated because stuff gets outdated quickly. Uh, That's why it's so wonderful to do uh, an exhibit on like Genghis Khan, for instance, right? Unless there's some dramatic new research that comes out on Genghis Khan, you're pretty safe to leave that one and not worry about it all that much. But when you do something on the war on terror, or you do something on things like cyber, or when you're doing anything that deals with counterintelligence, because we keep arresting people and they keep being, you know, we talk about Snowden in the museum. That story's not over yet, right? We don't Mm -hmm. know how that's going to play out, right? If he lives the rest of his life in Moscow, that could be another 40, 50 years. That may not play out for a long time. So who knows? And I think that's where the historian slash curator sips more into the curatorial side versus the historian side. The answer, the the really short answer is I have no idea. I was never a curator of a museum that just kind of plugged along just being a museum because the minute I walked in the door, we started building a new one. And so you get a chance. That's one of the great things about the timing of this transition is you'll get the chance to kind of make that job whatever it's going to be because we're, we're, we're not done tweaking, but a lot of the major tweaking is over. I mean, we've been open now for a year and a half, so we've done a lot of the heavy lifting. So a lot of things moving forward are going to be things like temporary exhibits. are going to be kind of moving around some of the stuff that we have in what we call open storage, bring new artifacts to bear and new interesting stories and stuff. So that's a lot of fun, uh, or it could be. I have no idea. Never done it. it. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. So sticking with the curator theme, um, Imagine um, Tamara, the president of the organization, says, thanks for your service, Vince. Um, 
take any one object away with you uh, for, uh, as a token of our appreciation. Not the ice axe, which, I assume. Right? Wh- 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 which, which one do you take? It's not the Trotsky <laughs> ice axe. I don't walk right out and sell it on you. Know. Um, so, no, so not the one that you can yes. resell uh, that's going to get you yeah. this value, but the one that right. that you would love to have in your home. Yeah, I mean, there, there are certain ones that kind of really, when I saw them for the first time, my eyes bulged. Um, one of them certainly was the V2 Blueprint. Uh, it was one that we kind of discovered by accident. Uh, it was part of a collection. Uh, the person who owned the collection didn't know he had it within his collection. It was just kind of among, among a group of rolled up CIA Family Day posters. Uh, and it was unrolled. And at first, it was unrolled horizontally. So it, it didn't look like what it was. And the people who were looking at it were kind of, is this the Sleeping Beauty, which is the kind of commando submarine like what was it and i'm standing across the room so i got a little bit of better view and i'm like hey flip that vertically and when they did i said a lot of naughty words and it said that's a v2 blueprint and it looks like it's an original nazi v2 blueprint and i got very close to it and if you notice if you've been here there's writing on it and the writing on it's in english and it was clearly written by american army personnel intelligence personnel who had captured it probably at pinamunde where the v2 program was and Talk about as a science and technology guy who, uh, you know, is a space nerd, uh, is a nuke guy. So talking about delivery systems and stuff like that, that's that's kind of one of the holy grails, I think, of uh, the museum. And then there's stuff that's not on display. I think that's really interesting. So we um, we were able to acquire the original blueprints for the Glomar Explorer, which is the the ship that was used to almost steal all of a Soviet submarine back in the 1970s. And uh, these are the full-scale sun shipbuilding blueprints about the size of a room. Basically, if you unrolled them all the way, that you could wallpaper a room with them. So that's why we don't have them on display, because it would just be massive. And they're not in great shape, but you get the chance to see kind of how the process played out, because the blueprints themselves have this kind of square area for changes. And so there was somebody from CIA, likely, saying, no, we need this to be a little bit bigger. We need the moon pool to be this dimension. So they're writing kind of these changes that are coming from the client, and the client in this case is CIA, even though no one knows that. And it's just kind of wonderful to see kind of this evolution of this technology that was dreamed up from the very beginning and put into place. Yeah, so what would I take with me? All right, so those two would be runners up. The one thing I would take with me is much smaller. And it's actually just a rubber stamp. And it's a rubber stamp that we have on display. And it's on display in our paramilitary section. And most people just walk right by it because they don't realize what it is. And it's a rubber stamp. And if you look at it closely, you'll see that the stamp has the word mongoose. And many people may know that Operation Mongoose was the CIA multi-year fiasco of a program to try to kill Fidel Castro and overthrow the Cuban regime uh, that included everything you know, you've read about probably from, you know, thallium salts to make his beard fall out to blazing his with LSD to, you know, exploding seashells and all sorts of exploding cigars, all sorts of things. Turns out that's not just a stamp that says mongoose on it. And actually it turns out that mongoose itself is not just the name of an operation. It actually was a classification system. So when you get to the level beyond top secret, there's no such thing as beyond the top. There's like a super secret top secret. Basically, at that point, you're getting into where it's code word clearance. So essentially, if you're not cleared for a certain program, you have no reason to be reading about that program. 
And Mongoose was that kind of a program where if you're cleared from Mongoose, you could read things that were stamped Mongoose. If not, I don't care who you are, what clearance you have, you should not be reading anything. So it turns out that Richard Helms, future CIA director, at the time the director of plans at CIA, used that stamp to designate things Mongoose that was sitting on his desk at CIA. And when he read something that was Mongoose related, he stamped, pat it, boom, Mongoose on the thing. And that classified it in that way. That stamp has seen so much chicanery, so much shenanigans. I mean, that that sat in so many meetings where people came in like Edward Lansdale and others saying, what if we did this? And he said, great idea, stamp. And of course, none of them worked. And I think that the number at the end that the Castro's chief of security uh, said the CIA tried to kill him like 623 times and obviously failed every time. Uh, it's just a glorious little thing that if you, and what I love about those those types of artifacts is that, yeah, the ice axe, you look at it, it's got a bloody fingerprint on it, you know it's something. You look at that stamp and it's just a stamp, but then you hear the story behind it and it really just brings that story to life. And those are the kind of things I love. I wish I could make your wish come true, but um, <laughs> um, and just one final question. I know there's, and as far as you're able, what what does the future hold for you? Um, you know, I know that you've written two books, Nuclear Spies and Nuking the Moon. Or, are, are there going to be any future yeah. books coming out? Um, yeah, just projects uh, you're working on. Sure. Um, sketch out the next, uh, the future for Vince Houghton. Yeah, so I'm transitioning to a new opportunity. Um, I will be able to let everyone know what it is sooner, hopefully, rather than later. Uh, I'm staying in the museum world. I'm staying in the Intel world. Uh, that's as much as I really can say publicly at this point. Um, but I do. I've just inked a deal uh, to with one of my best friends from when I was in elementary school. We grew up in Miami together. Uh, he now is in the national security business also here in DC. And we've always wanted to write a book about Miami. Uh, it's where we grew up and uh, it's not just a fun city where you know Will Smith likes to sing about it. Uh, it was really kind of the epicenter of the Cold War in Latin America. Uh, Miami became what it is today because of the Cold War, because of the US-Cuba rivalry. Uh, it went from being a pipsqueak little country, a little city at the end of World War II, where people just went to vacation or recuperate after if they'd been injured in the war, to a metropolis that is just billions and billions and billions of dollars. And it went through several cycles of growth and all the cycles of growth we believe, and we're gonna try to argue, were fueled uh, by intelligence, were fueled by the US-Cuba rivalry. Uh, whether it was the 60s and the CIA, whether it was the 80s, the cocaine cowboys, which the CIA looked the other way on, whether it was the post-Cold War world, where you've got not just Cuban intelligence in there, all of a sudden you've got Russians and Chinese and everybody else. Uh, I mean, Google Miami and spy, and you'll see what we're talking about here. There's a Once a week, there's some spy arrested in, by the Miami FBI field office, and they're not Cubans, they're actually Chinese now, and they're Russians, and they're others. So... We're gonna tackle that like no one ever has before. Uh, and it's not gonna be up for a while. This is gonna be a book that's gonna take some time to do. COVID is making it much, much harder because we can't go down there, obviously. Um, but in some respects, it's easier because everyone's now used to doing you know, Zoom meetings and we can talk to people virtually that we won't necessarily be able to do otherwise. Um, but this is something we're gonna, we're, we're taking pretty seriously. 
Uh, I would say for those that have read both books, they're very, Nuke of the Moon and Nuclear Spies are, are polar opposites in style, right? Nuclear Spies is very, I don't want to use the word dry. It's academic, it's straightforward, it's a, it's a traditional history. And then of course, Nuke of the Moon's the opposite, right? Where it's stream of consciousness, I'm writing in the first person, I'm cussing, I'm you know, doing all sorts of things. I think this will come down kind of in the middle where it's Miami, we're not gonna make it boring. It's a crazy city. You know, it's, it's as my writing partner says, it's really the Mos Eisley Cantina of Latin America. It's where if you want somebody to bump somebody off, you can find somebody in Miami to do it. If you want to invade a country, you can find somebody in Miami to do it. If you need secret transport somewhere, you can find, it is where you find a, you know, the, the hive of villainy. Uh, and so making it boring is not what we're going to do. Uh, but it's not going to be tongue in cheek because these are real lives we're talking about. This is this is real history. So it kind of will find that happy medium through the middle. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of what I'm doing over the next yearish. Um, I'm not just doing that. I will have a real job too. That's one thing that again I will let everyone know about as soon as I can. And the book on Miami, it's going to be based on archival research everything or interviews man, or just right? everything. Yeah. So there's a lot of archival stuff that's going to come into play. I mean, archival stuff from the government side, from CIA archives, from FBI, a lot of uh, FBI headquarters stuff, but also Miami field office uh, because they've been in the middle of everything for a long time. The National Security Agency was heavily involved uh, in that time period as well, listening stations against Cuba down in Miami. Uh, but CIA is huge. Uh, a lot of the CIA archives, but it's also, again, oral histories um, of CIA personnel who worked at JM Wave, which is the Miami field office, um, until uh, for basically all the 1960s. People that worked during the cocaine cowboy time period, a lot of them have retired to Miami, and we're talking about former CIA, but also former drug smugglers who have retired to Miami. Uh, it's going to be a lot of talking to sons and grandsons of of immigrants of those who had to leave everything behind because in many cases they're the ones in their attics that have the archive uh that have all their you know their grandfather went in for the bay of pigs and all his stuff is in the attic somewhere so it's not like we're just going to an archive where we've got to locate people who uh just have all that stuff lying around and that's that's a lot of people right we walk we're going to walk through a little havana once we can walk through a little havana again and sit down where the old guys are playing dominoes and just have conversations because that is what's going to be most fruitful in this case. But there will also be traditional historian stuff where we'll go into the archives of the city of Miami and look at economic growth and look at a lot of other things involved in Dade County proper uh, because we have to track that as well. The only way to make this stick as a story is to be able to prove that there was this growth, you know, bumps that took place during these times. Well, I look forward to the book, and I'm sure all of our listeners do too. We're all going to be a lot older by the time you get a chance to read it. Uh, it's going to take, I mean, COVID is just really slowing things down. But I, I, I'm hoping 2022 might be where you get to see the, the book, the book about Miami and its role in being kind of the centerpiece of the Cold War in Latin America. Okay, thanks, Vince. Of course. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.